Now we're going to have our final message of today by Curtis Wiley, entitled The Ethics of Faith in Prayer, The Conclusion. Thank you, Owen. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here, as it always is on a what has turned out to be a very beautiful Sabbath day. The rain has stopped. I never thought it would. The one thing that the weather people have been right about this week, it seems like. I uh, just want to kind of take a moment uh, to just uh, thank you guys for your prayers and what was mentioned by Steve just a minute ago about uh, both Katie, my wife, as well as uh, Rhett. Uh, he has the, the type A flu. All of my family has had the flu but me. Uh, well, Katie has not. She's had some other issues. But uh, he's, uh, he's doing well. Uh, it doesn't seem to be hitting him really hard. Uh, it just makes him a little bit more fussy, a little bit more sleepy. And uh, so it's been very uh, well contained, I guess you'd say. His fever's been maintained. And so we're just hoping that uh, we continue, continue to get that improvement. As many of us understand uh, how bad the flu is, as was mentioned by Steve, and how serious the flu is, especially, uh, of course, across the, the, the country, but in the state of Oklahoma, I think there's records that have been broken, uh, both in hospitalizations as well as deaths, or close to it at least. I don't know the actual figures. So I just wanted to thank you uh, for, for your prayers, and uh, with that, I would like to open uh, uh, talking about prayer today, because that's what this message is about. Uh, today is the conclusion to this series of the, the, the Ethics of Faith. Uh, and prayer. We're going to cover the last part of James today. And so just to kind of review what we've covered in this year-long, it's been more than a year actually, year-long series. It's been 10 parts. This is number 10. Uh, we've looked at the epistle of James. And if you have not been here for, for uh, uh, many of these messages, that is okay. Uh, every one of them is self-contained. Uh, they do build upon themes. They do build upon some of the ideas that James has to say. Uh, but they are all a little bit different. So just looking back at what we've talked about in this series. And we opened up the series a year ago, and we just kind of talked about the background of the Epistle of James and, and about how the Epistle of James had a hard time coming into the canon of the New Testament. We talked about, mainly in that first message, about our identity. About our identity and who we are. As James opens up, it says, James, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and God. We also talked about, as is a large theme and a big concept in the Epistle of James, we talked about trials. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. Because a lot of these themes are circular, meaning that they continue to come around more than just once in the Epistle. We talked about obedience. And we kind of identified, if you take the theme of James, what is the primary thing that his Epistle is about? And that is to walk the walk. Put your faith into action. We also talked about justice, about using our speech appropriately and the power of the tongue. James really emphasized, and this is a big thing that tends to continue to come up over and over in the epistle of James, just how important our speech is. And of course, we talked about wisdom in this, this last message, uh, this last January, number nine, we talked about patience. And so today... I have entitled this, The Ethics of Faith in Prayer. So I just want to read the first few verses 
Okay, chapter 5, 13 through, oh, we're probably going to go through uh, 18. And I just want to pick it up here in James, the fifth chapter. And James asks this question, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the, heaven, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So right here, we open up in the, this, this message, and we see that James gives us two conditions in life. And he asks this question, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing songs. And I might have to add, this is a very common Thing that many of the New Testament letters take. and the ending of their epistle, there is an exhortation to pray. And so it's interesting that we see this word suffering, so we just have to ask the question, what is James talking about when he says, is anyone among you suffering? It's the Greek word kakapathio, which is something I, it's hard for me to pronounce, but it essentially is the same word that James uses just a few verses before this in James the fifth chapter verse 10 when he's talking about the suffering of the prophets. So we know the suffering that the prophets went through. This word most likely, because it can mean more than one thing, it means most likely the general sufferings, the trials, the various difficulties that we, that people have to endure. The experience of trials is most likely this focus. And it's interesting that he uses the same word that's applied to the prophets. And we can just think back to so many prophets and how much of their lives were marked by suffering. And it's also probably this way of using this word suffering because we know that James is contrasting the word suffering with cheerfulness. He also, in the first chapter, verse 2, he opens up the message by saying something that, as we mentioned back in that first message or that second message when we cover it, something that's kind of hard for us to understand. He says, count it all joy when you enter into various trials. So we know that a lot of James's message is focused on a people that are probably going through suffering. He's talking to brethren. He says the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. And we know that we can think of our lives today, and we know that many of our brethren are scattered abroad, and many of them are suffering. So I want to just kind of look at this. I want to look at two things in looking at what James is saying. And I want us to think of the natural way or the natural response to suffering and the spiritual response to suffering. In this letter, James points to many things, obviously, that point, that. that causes people to suffer. I mean, let's just think about it. He's talked about the poor being oppressed by the rich. 
He's talked about maybe governing or political powers that are bent on persecuting the believers, persecuting the brethren. And we know that suffering does come through many different measures. Every week we come here and we listen in the middle part of this service and we hear about people that are suffering. Some of them are among us here that come here often. Some of them we've never even heard of before. Suffering is something that is very common in this life. It's hard to think of that word suffering, and I want to kind of get into what Mr. Hope was just talking about. It's hard to think about the word suffering in this context today. On February the 24th, 2018, without thinking about what happened 10 days ago in this country. We live in a nation that is suffering. I don't want to talk about what the solution is. We ultimately know what the solution is. I just want us to think about what took place, and in particular, how people, they're suffering because of this. Ten days ago, many people's lives changed forever. Mothers, fathers, cousins, brothers, sisters, friends, teachers, principals, administrators, police officers. People's lives changed forever. People are in suffering in this country. We have come to a point in society where, unfortunately, what happened 10 days ago is just a reminder of the illness that this country is in. That we live in a world, that we live in a country where things like this take place, where maybe 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, no one would have thought about this or something like this occurring. And as David talked about, thy kingdom come. And just talking about, and just thinking about the idea of suffering, suffering is something that's real. It's not something that we just hear about and we just talk about all of us suffer. People here are suffering in some way probably. And I want us to think about that as we think about our natural response. And James right here asked the question, is anyone among you suffering? And I think that perpetually, as we are in the flesh, in this life, that answer to that question will always be yes until Jesus comes, until, as David said, ye kingdom come. And so we will always have people suffering among us. So we have to ask the question, what is the natural response to suffering in this life? And I think that James gets to it. Because James says that the spiritual response is prayer. And of course, prayer through faith. And I think that what he's saying here is that, you know, all of these things that we've been talking about, all of these trials that you've been going through, all of these things that have maybe come upon you, whether it be from brethren doing it to each other, whether it be about, you know, different things that have befallen you, whether it be uh, political powers or secular powers, the proper response shouldn't be improper use of the tongue, anger, but they should be prayer. The spiritual response, simply put, as James tells us, is prayer, and of course, prayer and faith in God. Paul tells us something in Philippians, the fourth chapter, verse 7. Now, I didn't give this passage to Brian, but you can look it up on your own. But he essentially tells us that 
prayer to God will provide us with the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. And this understanding will guide our, or guard our hearts and minds. I believe every word what Paul says. But I also believe that we will not immediately always know that understanding. That understanding does not always come immediately. Sometimes it takes time for this understanding to come. In the case of James, he talks about people who are suffering and people that are sick. And we know oftentimes, as we just heard, a lot of times suffering in this world comes through various ailments, various sicknesses. And James tells us to do something that is interesting because I've always known this verse so well for one reason. And that is because every single week that we print on our bulletins, every single week, and there's a bulletin right here, that passage is right above the prayer request. James 5, verse 16. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It's an interesting passage. And as our custom is, and we get it from this, when we are sick, when we have different ailments, what do we do? We do what James says. We go to the elders and we ask them to be prayed for and they anoint us with oil and prayer. It's an interesting passage, just thinking about, you know, and call the elders of the church, call the overseers. Let's just ask the question, what is oil? What's the purpose of the oil? Why do we use oil? Is it some sort of medicinal purpose? Does that have a healing power to it? You know, in the New Testament world, in the Old Testament world, they actually did use oils for different healing or different medicinal reasons. But it's interesting when you think about the, the use of oil in the Bible. And oftentimes, the use of oil is symbolic or it's for a sacrament. We look at the temple and the different things that have to be anointed and the different individuals. And so the anointing here is most likely a symbolic gesture or reference, in this case, to the Old Testament. Oftentimes, oil is used when we symbolize a consecration for something. And that word means a setting apart. And so when we go to our elders and we are anointed, what we are doing is, is that the elders, through our uh, going to them, through our obedience to them, they are setting us apart. They are setting that person apart. They are consecrating that person apart for that specific purpose. They are separating, they are identifying that this person, holding them up as a symbolic gesture that this person has an element that needs to be or needs to have a special attention. Now I want us to notice, just looking at James the fifth chapter, verse 14, I want to look at this and I want to compare this to 1 Kings 17, verse 1, because we see that James, he uses a lot of analogies. He says, pray. He says, call the elders, anoint them with oil. He says, an effective, you know, a prayer of a righteous person is very effective. And if we look at verse 14, and I'm going to skip, I'm going to just read 14 through 17 here. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will, will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And if you skip down to verse 17, 
He brings this example to us. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruits. Now, if we skip over there to 1 Kings, the 17th chapter, verse 1, and I can just read it for you. I guess I did give it to Brian. I could not remember. We see the introduction to this story right here, this reference in 1 Kings 17, verse 1. It says, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now the reason I wanted to look at those two things together is I want to consider two things. Number one, I want us to notice how James emphasizes that Elijah was a man like us. And what's being emphasized is not his masculinity, but his humanity. James isn't this person that's just, you know, some put up on a, I mean, obviously we do esteem Elijah, rather, as someone that's very important. In fact, if you look at the New Testament, no other Old Testament prophet, I'm not talking about citation, okay, like, you know, the New Testament cites Isaiah or Jeremiah. I'm talking about a reference to. No other prophet in the Old Testament is more referenced than Elijah. He's used over and over and over again. I want us to notice how James emphasizes Consider Elijah a man like us. Elijah, a man with a nature like ours. And what's being emphasized here is our similarity to Elijah. Obviously, not in circumstance always, but rather, he's a person just like us. And if we look at his story, his story is amazing because here's this person that has this relationship with God that's proclaiming the message of God and is proclaiming the name of the Lord, by the, the living God, I'm proclaiming this. But he's still just like us. He's tempted. He's not perfect. In fact, there's a point in his story where he just wants to fall down and says, God, take my life. I can't do this anymore. Please, just let me die. If you look at 1 Kings 19, verse 4. After he's running for his life, he's pleading with God done what you wanted me to do. I can't do anymore. He has doubts. Just like me and you will have doubts. These people are men and I mean obviously they're humans just like us. And I want to say that because it's not emphasizing masculinity. It's emphasizing his humanity. He's not someone that just automatically oh yeah everything God says I believe it. And This is a person who has seen the miracles of God. He proclaims that there would be no rain for three and a half years and gets into a competition with Ahab and his prophets, and he still is tempted into feeling despair. I think we can identify with this individual when we look at this. That's what, one of the things that I wanted to bring out. The second thing is how James uses that word in the name of the Lord. And we notice when we looked at Elijah, looking at 1 Kings 17.1, Elijah says, as the Lord of Israel lives. We're not calling upon something that's inanimate. We're not calling upon an idol. We're calling upon the living God. 
there is power in his name. There is power in his name. In both instances, the name of the Lord was employed. Obviously, that's not exactly how 1 Kings 17 verse 1 says it. But when he says, as the Lord of Israel lives, he's proclaiming what God this power is coming from. It's coming from the God of Israel. And as a reminder to me and you today, the power that the name of God has, obviously through the name Jesus Christ. So with that, I want us to look at an example today. It's an example that I've touched upon before, but it's something that came back to me as I was preparing for this message this week. And I was thinking about who was someone in the Bible that showed great faith, that suffered, that had a lot of trials that they went through. We can think of many people that are very, very known to us, many popular what we'd call you know, giants of faith in the Bible. But I want us, for this particular purpose, I want us to go to Mark, the first chapter. And I want us to look at somebody that we never hear of again. And it's actually someone who has a particular element that is, to me, key to this whole story. And it's about the, 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 the cleansing, the healing of the leper of Jesus. And Mark, the first chapter, look at where we are in Mark. It's the very beginning of Mark's gospel. We're going to pick it up in verse 40. And the context is that Jesus is going throughout Galilee and he's healing people. And he's getting more popular. And more people are, are hearing about the, the great works that he's doing. And he's, he's casting demons out of people that are possessed. And in verse 40 he says, Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him, and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus, moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest and offer for yourself or offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city but was outside in deserted places and they came to him from every direction. So I want us to look at different facets of this story. First, we just have to observe and we just have to think, you know, what is going on here? We're talking about a person who has the disease of leprosy. And it's something that I've never encountered myself personally, at least as far as I am aware of. It's not something that you hear people commonly talk about here in our day and age and in our culture. But if we look at the background of a person who has leprosy from an Old Testament perspective, we see in Leviticus the 13th chapter and verse 14 as well, it gives further instructions on what has to take place for someone who has this particular ailment. Leprosy was something that made a person first and foremost ceremonially unclean and cut off from the city limits. Leprosy was something that was incurable by human means. It was a disease that was not something that was to be messed with. It was something that was serious. You know, there are various diseases, but leprosy was something that was truly incurable. All who came into physical contact with lepers were also themselves considered ceremonially unclean. So these individuals who were considered ceremonially unclean themselves had to live outside the city limits and people they come in contact with would also become ceremonially unclean and would have to go through a series of washings and, 
and rituals to be able to get clean again. Because of this, unfortunately for these individuals, they were outcasts of society. They were not just outcasts, but they were repulsive because this is, unlike some diseases, this was an outward disease. It was noticeable when a person had leprosy, and it was something that was not looked upon favorably. Lepers were required to do many things, not just set outside the city limits, but they had to mark themselves by wearing certain types of clothing. And if someone was to maybe be in jeopardy of coming too close to them, we see there are precedents that they have to take. There are steps that they have to take to make sure that the person understands that they are unclean, such as shouting unclean or doing something like this. Okay? So obviously, this was a very, very serious disease. I mean, can we just imagine what this would be like? being an outcast of your society. And think about how serious, I mean, you're talking about first century Palestine. You're talking about a, a time where people were very serious about their faith, and in particular, very serious in taking the necessary precautions in order to continue to be what they would consider Torah observant or Torah compliant, a compliant to the covenant law of Israel. This would sometimes potentially until leaving someone's family, their friends, being cut off from their people. Yeah, they're cut off from not just their family and friends, but also, in their mind, like their heritage people. Like, I mean, I don't, if we can just think about it, people in this day and age that were Jewish, in this context, probably had other Jews that they primarily had to rely on. I mean, if we look at the history and we look at the situation because of what was required of a Jew living during his time or someone who was just living under the law, someone who was compliant, it was not very compatible with the lifestyles of Gentiles. So this is a person that is literally cut off from society. And of course this would entail a life of suffering, both physically as well as emotionally. This would involve a lifetime potentially of begging. I mean, how many people want to hire a, be a, a leper in their business? Probably not that many. So you're probably going to have employment problems as well. And so because of this, the evidence shows, looking at historical sources that I, I've looked at, and I can't cite them right now because it's been a while since I've looked at them, but it potentially a lot of these lepers sometimes would hang around what you would consider dumps places scavenging for food. You know, obviously a person who's not able to meet ends meet financially. This was truly a hopeless situation. Though. Hopeless. But there was potential healing when he heard about Jesus. This is a life of solidarity and isolation that must have caused, as we've already covered, a lot of, a lot of depression, a lot of hopelessness. If you were a leper and you understood the scriptures, then you understood this. The last person that's found biblically to be healed from leprosy was in 2 Kings, the fifth chapter. So if you had leprosy and you started thinking about that, you might start thinking, man, not a lot of people healed from what I got here. It's not really happening very often. Now my chances are very slim. But then this guy named Jesus comes along and people start talking about how they're healed from different things and how demons are taken out of people. And so we look at this and we have to consider a few things. I want to first consider the leper's faith and courage. 
So we know what the stipulations are for lepers. We know what that must have been like. Or we don't know, but we can just imagine. But we, we see what he does in spite of that. The leper had the faith that Jesus was, number one, capable of healing him in spite of his incurability. This man must have knew that this was not a disease that was healed through medical means, through spiritual means, at least in his, his history and his past. But Jesus says, or this leper says rather, if you are willing, you can make me clean. If you are willing, you can make me clean. And what does Jesus do? In light of the leper's condition, we see his courage and we see his faith. Jesus' response is compassion and power. We look at the context, we've already mentioned about how a lot of people, or this man must have knew, knew about Jesus. But let's just take a step back and think about his action one more time. He knew about his requirements. And he knew that going to Jesus was risky, not just because he might fail like, for instance, in his mind, maybe he didn't fully understand who Jesus was. He had heard about this man that was healing people. He had heard about Jesus' success. Maybe he didn't fully know about Jesus and who exactly he was. So he's taking a risk that maybe Jesus isn't able to, but he seems to be knowing that he is. But more than anything, he's taking a risk of rejection. He's taking a risk of rejection. Jesus' response was one of compassion. As the scripture says that Jesus had compassion for this man and did not hesitate but stretched out his hand and touched him and made the man clean. But there are some interesting ramifications of what Jesus did here that has some universal implications. One of them is it showed the difference between the rabbis and Jesus. And that's why I mentioned that this man could have in his mind been thinking of a, he might reject me, he might rebuke me. I mean, I am a leper, and that is really, you know, a strict law to, to keep away from people. And we can probably just imagine if he would have went to a Pharisee, if he would have went to maybe one of the rabbis or one of the, the priests and said, hey, can you do this? And, of course, they had some obligations themselves to do some things. But a rabbi would probably hardly touch a man and most likely would probably rebuke, rebuke this man for even imploring them. So it showed the difference between the rabbis and Jesus, but it also showed the love, compassion, and mercy of Jesus. The love, compassion, and the mercy of Jesus. This act showed Jesus' genuine concern for this individual. Jesus had genuine concern for this person that was in the midst of hopelessness. And this proved that Jesus truly walked the walk. He didn't just talk the talk, but he walked the walk and he fulfilled the prophecy that he proclaimed, that Jesus proclaimed when he came to heal the brokenhearted. I can imagine this person was brokenhearted. I can imagine this person living in a life of hopelessness and being in this situation probably breaks you down. Probably gets you to that point. But it also shows Jesus in looking at this that he truly came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And we've heard that passage so many times. Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 17 through 18 says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And we've used that passage so many times to demonstrate the importance of 
how Jesus even demonstrated that the law was still relevant to the Christian. And he didn't come here to destroy it. For I, verse 18, for assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. But notice how he didn't just say law, but he said the prophets. And of course, in those days, that's just a way of saying the covenant. The, the words of God, the law and the prophets was just a way of saying basically, you know, we have the law and we have the prophets. And sometimes they would mix it with law, prophets, and psalms or writings. But it was just the Bible, God's words that he had spoken and that had been written down and inspired in times past. What we consider what we call the Old Testament. Let's consider this passage. Let's just consider this passage I did not come to destroy the law of the prophets. And let's just consider how potentially this is an instance that Jesus is demonstrating that this story is demonstrating that he indeed did come to fulfill the prophets. So we look at this and we already went over the Old Testament laws to anyone who had leprosy or who came into physical contact with someone who had leprosy. But let's just consider what Jesus does in light of this. The implication by reading the text is that Jesus, this man approached Jesus and Jesus didn't run away. He didn't say, back up, you're, you're a leper. I don't want to be ceremonially unclean. But Jesus engaged with this person physically. Jesus touched this person. And so if we wanted to follow that logic, we can actually consider, is Jesus, in this case, being considered ceremonially unclean. Is he breaking that law? Or not the law, obviously we know he doesn't break the law, but is he breaching those requirements on what considers a person to stay clean? And so I ask for you just to stay with me here and of course hold your judgments on what I'm saying here and stay with me. And let's just ask the question, what did the law and the prophets say about Jesus? In other words, what did it prophesy he would do? Let's go to Isaiah, the 53rd chapter. I didn't give this to Brian. I apologize. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Isaiah 53, verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Something we're very familiar with. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And so when we compare this passage to Matthew, the 8th chapter, verse 16 and 17, it says in verse 16 of Matthew, the 8th chapter, when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. So in this case, we don't have evidence that Jesus is obviously considered ceremonially unclean. But what we do have evidence of is that Jesus engaged with a person who had leprosy. And so here you have this situation where we know what that means for a person who has leprosy. What you're, you know, you're supposed to keep a distance and you're not supposed to touch him. But the interesting thing is that Jesus, that's exactly what he came here to do. To engage us that are sick. To bear our infirmities. And if you look at Luke, the 7th chapter, verse 22, I'm not asking you to turn there. We see that Jesus proclaims, go and tell them, the lame walk, the blind, the blind see, the lepers are cleansed. 
This is how Jesus is fulfilling the prophet. He came here to die for us on the cross and to bear our sin. But also, this is a demonstration that Jesus didn't come here to be this priest that's afar off from everybody and, oh, you're over there, keep a distance, I'm holy, don't touch me. He came here to engage us. He came here to take on our sicknesses. And this is not something that just began when he was put up on a cross. It was something that he demonstrated in his entire ministry. The last thing that I want to bring out on these implications is this story shows is both the power of Jesus to heal and his right to heal. Remember what James says, in the name of the Lord... There's power in that name. This story shows the power Jesus possesses or possessed to do things that are impossible with man. This was an incurable disease, and in this case, this disease was healed, and it was healed at the command of his word, and that is what we are proclaiming, his name. We are proclaiming his name. This is what separated Jesus from the miracle workers of the day. He didn't just go around trying to heal people for healing and, and to, for notoriety. This separated Jesus from the supposed miracle workers of the day that had to appeal to special rituals or pagan, pagan gods to do so. It also shows the deity of Jesus and having that right, that capability when it comes to things like be healed or your sins are forgiven. I also want to look at something that happens at the end of this little story. The command after the miracle. You see, Jesus does this little thing and he heals this person, but he, he gives them some instructions while he does this. After this miracle, if we read verses 43 through 44 again, he actually tells this person to do exactly what the law had prescribed. He says in verse 43, And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way and show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to him. So right here we see that there are two things that Jesus commands the leper to do. The first thing that Jesus warns the man publicly from telling him what happened, from telling people what happened. And this is very, very peculiar. Now, why would Jesus do this? Why is he saying, don't go and tell people about what I've done for you? There's a lot of speculation around about this, but there could potentially be some reasons, and one of them being Jesus did not want people to come to him as, to, and think of him just as a miracle worker. Someone who was just going around and in the process of that misunderstand who he was. That Jesus was there with a message, not just with healing people. The second thing is that Jesus shows his reverence for the law. As can be seen by his command for the leper to go to the priest and to do the appropriate ceremonial cleansing and for it to be performed. This ceremony is what confirmed the leper to be cleansed. In the Old Testament, we see the prescription is, is that you have to go through the ceremony and a priest has to declare one clean. And Jesus doesn't skip this. And he shows his interest in upholding what the law stipulates. And so if we look at this, we can look and see that there's some implications. I want to look at some implications for this and I want to conclude 
by looking at some applications, both of this story and looking at it and paralleling it to the epistle of James. We know that one of the implications is that through Jesus we are healed and restored back, restored back into a relationship with God and our community. And that's something that we see kind of in James, that a person is to call upon the elders, a person is to pray, uh, a person is to go to the elders and be, be healed, to be prayed for, and their sins to be forgiven, for restoration, both physically as well as, as, well as spiritually rest- restoration. The second implication is that Jesus has the power and the right to heal, and this shows and confirms his deity. We have a Savior in Jesus Christ that through his, or through his, his suffering, he bore our sins. And this individual gave up so much to do that. Three, the third implication, this lesson shows that with man, things are impossible. Of course, we understand that. But with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing is more than God can handle. Nothing more, is more than God can handle. And the last implication is our actions, our disobedience. This is something I really want to uh, look at in looking at the epistle of James and what James has to say about prayer. Our disobedience can hinder God's work. And when we do this, we are really hindering ourselves because it can nullify us from being an effective witness for God. And the reason I am saying this is because this man, even though he seemed to have the right attitude in coming to Jesus in faith, and he was healed, this man did not seem to actually fully obey Jesus and doing what he did. Now, we don't know, of course, we assume that he probably went to the priest, but it says that he proclaimed Jesus. He couldn't contain his joy. And the reason I want to focus on that is because when it comes to our healing that, and our praying, that it, it's not just, you know, we're suffering and we pray to God and for God to heal us and for God to take our, 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 our suffering away or to help us, help bear, uh, bear with us on that, but we also have to remember that we have to be obedient to God. There is a reason for our obedience. And so in conclusion, looking at the applications of this story, I have a couple that I would like to bring out. One of them is, is this story shows us how we should be compassionate to those who are considered outcasts in society. We should be compassionate to those that are considered outcasts in our society, which is something that if you look at the book of James and what we've talked about in this epistle, in this series, James has a lot to do with that. James has a lot to say about justice. James has a lot to say about esteeming oneself above someone else, whether from their financial status or from their notoriety status or from maybe their political power. Or, you, know, you look at someone and do you esteem them higher based upon things that are humanly, things that are carnal. So make sure that we have compassion for everyone, especially those who are suffering. You know, if we think about it, all of us, in a way, were spiritually lepers before we came into Christ. We all were. We were all outcasts from the promise. You know, we can think about what Jesus did for us, and we can think about what the penalty of sin is, and we can think about how far that brought us away from the covenant and how Jesus is taking on of our infirmities, made it possible for us to be healed and for us to come in to the community of God again.
The second application is that this story shows us that we must have the proper attitude when approaching God. Even though in the end the leper disobeyed Jesus' command, he showed the proper humble attitude when approaching Jesus. And this is what James is talking about. Having the proper attitude or proper response when we go through various things in life, whether it be suffering, whether it be persecution, whether it be an illness. And I'm here to tell you that I understand that it's, it's so easy to say these things. It's, not, it's, it's, it's a different story when it comes to actually putting them into practice. This is not something that's easy. Our response physically or naturally when we are suffering is not happiness. It's not joy. It's not. These are not meant to be things that are naturally easy for the human person to think on. Third, our third application. This story shows us that faith and healing need to be followed by obedience. We know this. We have to obey God. It's not just something that we do to rely on God, but you know, we, we have to focus on you know, what got us to this point. And in no way am I saying that sin gets us to that point. We have examples of that in the Bible where sin can bring upon sicknesses or illnesses, but by no means is that the only reason. There are occasions where Jesus you know, condemned that ideology. Okay? We have to be obedient to God, though. And fourth, we have to understand that disobedience can hinder God's work. And remember that we can be potential vessels of God. So this is, in closing, wrapping up our last message on the ethics of faith. I just want to kind of uh, encourage us to continue to study this book. Of course, many other books as well. And just to really think about one of the big passages in this little section of, in chapter 5 of James. Pray fervently. All of us can probably pray more. In this case, this leper had Jesus right in front of him and he could talk face to face to him. Can we approach God as if he's right in front of us? Obviously, he's not. He's not physically right here with us where we can see him, but he's in our hearts. He is with us. Can we say that we have a relationship with God that's demonstrating that we know how to pray fervently? A fervent prayer of a righteous man or a righteous person is very effective. I want us to think on those things as we close this series on the ethics of faith and we think about how faith is something that has actions. That faith is something that is not just something we believe, but it's something that we believe and it's so ingrained into us, it's a part of our DNA that it forces us naturally to act upon that faith. So as I close this message, I just want to appreciate everybody uh, for the support, for the encouragement in doing this series and hearing your feedback. I hope it was helpful. Uh, I encourage you to focus on, obviously, the entire Bible with the book of James. There's so many things that we had no time to touch upon. There's so many different themes that 10 messages... Could, could just scratch the surface of what this book of James has to offer. So with that, I just appreciate it. I just encourage you guys, as we go out, pray fervently. Pray for each other. Uh, pray for your loved ones. And understand that people in this world are suffering. And understand that there is a cure for that. That there is uh, there's a response to that that God uh, wants us to have. 
He wants us to be in such a relationship with him that our natural response is our spiritual response. And that is pray earnestly to God. 